Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space-time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts from drug users and activists to academics and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer. What could a better future hold? Please be aware that this episode mentions sexual assault. Content warnings, additional context, and links to resources mentioned on the show are included in each episode's show notes. Today, um, just for listeners, today we're starting something um, a little experimental again, um, which will be, uh, I really want to cover a different country that's not the U.S. or Canada. Um, and uh, so we thought we would do a little Latin American series. So, you know, from time to time, we'll pull in guests from uh, Latin America just to give us kind of a, a like a different sense of um, drug policy and uh, the needs um, of, you know, kind of various different people across the world because it's not just about Canada and the United States. Uh, Step away from like a westernized paradigm. Well, they're, they're, they're in the West. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess from the perspective of like how people use that as shorthand to mean the U.S. and Canada. But you're right. It's yeah. not a very precise word. <laughs> I will say North and then South and global, something like that. Well, you're in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Mm. <laughs> uh, anyways um yeah um ernesto tell us what what you do okay so i'm ernesto cortez i'm from costa rica i'm an anthropologist i work on drugs for the last i don't know 15 years i'm director of the costa rican association on drug studies and intervention an ngo we created like i think it's like eight nine years ago and I'm also a member of the Latin American network of people who use drugs. I do other stuff, but I also teach university classes and anthropology, stuff like that. But I think we're going to talk about drugs. So let's go with it. I feel like we have to talk about anthropology. Um, Mariel, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> yeah, of course. And guess what? I'm an anthropologist too. Oh. <laughs> There's the only one here who's not. I have a degree in anthropology. <laughs> I don't do it like now, but I have a bachelor's degree in it. So I feel like we're a hundred percent pro anthro here. Of course. And we do anthropology, even though we think that we're not doing it, we are doing it. It's part of who we are now. It's part of our bodies, you know. Um That's a good point. <laughs> okay, I'll quickly introduce myself. My name is Mariana Quesada. Um, as I told you, I'm an anthropologist. I think I'm finishing my degree in anthropology. Um, my emphasized topics on work are uh, gender, women, and drug use. Those are like the main topics that I like to discuss. I'm currently uh, working on my research and my college research around women who use drugs in my college campus. And um, I work for, well, 
um, I collaborate and work on two main organizations, which are Youthrise, which I had the pleasure to work with Alex too. And I've also um, co-directing LPSD, which is Latin America for Sensible Drug Policy. And in my Costa Rican chapter, I'm in charge of the communications department, which are my strong skills. So that's what I do. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Very cool. Good to have you too, yeah. Uh, and Mary Alba, um, like um, as part of like my, my thought process and like one of the spurring things for this podcast and the way I've been thinking recently, it's actually one of our calls with Youth Rise that like kind of got me um, thinking about like what we'll talk about. Um, well, that and like getting my ass handed to me by in, in as gentle way as possible by Zara Snap at CND last year, the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, or a couple of years ago. It's the pandemic times all, all, all like kind of uh, up in the air. Just um, you brought up at the time like the the different needs. Um, that, you know, we sometimes have as like activists, you know, working in these international spaces um, and how the conversations end up being different. Um, I, and I know also, Ernesto, I don't think you mentioned the fact that you do a lot of stuff at CND. Do you think you could like talk about that a little bit? Right. So, yeah, I've been, I don't know, three, four times to CND. Now, the, the thing was in, in August, you know, 2015, 2014, uh, there was a lot of funding and there was a lot of things going on. So everybody could go to Vienna if they wanted to. And Soros was just giving out money so everybody could be there. You know? I got a lot of support from IDPC, International Consortium on Drug Policy, International Drug Policy Consortium. You know, so um, I've been there like three or four years, four times, you know, as um, we did a several side events with uh, TNI, with IDPC, with Intercambios Argentina, and with the Costa Rican Embassy. In fact, I, I made a good relationship with the Costa Rican ambassador, the previous Costa Rican ambassador, Doña Pilar. Um, we, we really, I really could understand how this international drug policy works and how difficult it's to do advocacy and how um, costly it's also to do advocacy at this, at this space you now. So we tried to move on, but I also understood how the, the Costa Rican embassy works in Vienna. No, they're the Costa Rican embassy for Austria, but also for the Balkan region. And they're like five people. So, and they have to know not only do CND, they also do CCPCJ and they also do the nuclear thing and i don't know how many other commissions they have there so at a certain point also i understood if i do if i want to move forward international agenda from my country i have to work here at the foreign policy ministry and there's what i found uh, a wall you now so uh, also the ambassador changed at a certain point so it just becomes like really difficult to to understand but it's really interesting and i think it's really important to understand how this whole international drug policy works because at the end it influences what happens in our country yeah no for sure and that's funny so like you and i met first um when i came down to costa rica to do harm reduction that was um you know uh, and i saw you at cnd the year after uh, <laughs> it was such a such a lovely pleasant surprise so we had kind of um initially planned this episode um with um with uh, Marissa, uh, who is also a member of LPSD, correct? Um, and unfortunately, she couldn't attend today. Um, and so, uh, 
this episode, yeah, uh, we're going to talk just a bit um, about some broad themes, but I, I we'll, we all kind of agree we're going to focus mostly on, on Costa Rica and, and Costa Rican stuff. Um, um, I, I guess, uh, so uh, you gave us some recommended readings. I did some of them. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, I, the only one I didn't do was on the smokable cocaine stuff. Um, but I, I, I guess like, you know, when we, you know, it's like what like TV shows like Narcos and like all of this stuff, like when, you know, people in like the, the global North, like tend to think about drought, like, you know, Latin America, you know, it's, it's like narco states and, you know, all of this kind of, uh, not very complex understandings. Um, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could, you know, tell us like a bit about, um, you know, the history of Costa Rica and Costa Rican drug policy. All right. So um, I, I think an important point to say it's, it's drug policy in Latin America. It's really different from country to country. Now, we all have the war on drugs, you know, as you also have up there. Um, it's the fact that it started in the United States and they just brought it everywhere now and we just embrace it and really fought against drugs and effects against people who use drugs. But it definitely may has this idea of this whole drug trafficking you know, stuff. You now, in fact, uh, uh, we've seen there's more stigma toward drug users than drug dealers you know, because if you're a drug dealer, you're fancy and make money and you're a gangster and all that stuff. But the, the funny thing is uh, most countries in Latin, America, in Latin America, you could say drug use or drug possession, it's criminalized. You know? Costa Rica and maybe Uruguay and I think Colombia have different kind of laws you know, that is more related to health issues. So in Costa Rica, we could say that drug possession for personal use has never been fully criminalized or, or penalized, you know, because at the end you do get stopped and frisked by police and your or your drug gets taken. So at the, at the end, there's a criminalization for sure, but you don't go to jail, you know, different from, I don't know, Mexico or Central America that if you carry more than five grams. So we don't have thresholds either in Costa Rica, you know, just, uh, you don't, we don't have an amount that that police can say, okay, if you carry this amount, you can go to prison or if you don't know. So I could tell you, I've been stop and frisk many, many times in my life. I lost count how many times I got stopped and frisked. Well, I'm 40 years old now, so I haven't been stopped and frisked for at least, I think five or six years. Now, um, it's also a, 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 an age issue. Definitely young people get more stopped and frisk and I have a car and I drive in a car. So definitely. So the point is that um, this uh, this situation also has also created like this. The the police has to demonstrate that you are selling, you know, that the, the the drugs that you're carrying it's for traffic. You know? So um, I've been stopped and frisked like carrying also an ounce of weed, for example. You know? and I. The, the worst thing that happened is the police just took me to the police station and wrote down a note and called my mom to pick me up or something like that. You know? um, when I know that in many countries in Latin America, you can go to prison for more than five grams of weed, for example. And in fact, I could tell you Mexico, I got extortion by police officers where we were three of us and we have to pay the police officer like a hundred dollars 
uh, if not to go to, to um, I don't know, the public attorney and prove that I was carrying less than five grams. But also the, the thing is that if you get caught selling, you, know, you can go eight years to prison. So the minimum sentence is really, really high. You know, for, for example, sexual abuse to a minor, it's five years or, or uh, shoplifting is like three years. You know, selling a joint or a crack rock, it's eight years in prison. So even though drug use and drug possession for personal use is not criminalized, drug trafficking is unproportionally or disproportionately penalized. I, and I, okay, so when I, when I was trying to read about this, um, it really hurt my brain um, because so Costa Rica has two drug laws, right? There's like the health one, and then there's a second one. It's the same law. That's the point, and that's the, the crazy stuff. This both the criminalization of, of, of drug use and drug possession and disproportionately penalizing drug traffic, it's in the same law. So at the end, it's, it's a whole stigma and discrimination process and violence that many times you have to prove that you're, a, you're an addict. Now, in fact, I could tell you in many times, in many cases, I've been worked with the public defense. Now, the way to, to uh, make a person don't go to prison, it's to say you're an addict. Now, and so the, the even, I even heard public defense attorneys saying, uh, smoke as much as you can, try to burn your lips and your fingers and, Oh, wow. hope you have, I don't know, scar face or shit like that. No, you have to look oh, like fuck. an addict. Um, and, and we have done that a lot of times. Now, mainly for uh, per people living in vulnerable conditions. I don't know, uh, crack users. You know, we said, man, smoke as many rocks as you can and just go as high as you can in that um, court. No? So you prove you're an addict and you're not selling. And it's, it's crazy. No? It's, it's a stigma all over the place anyway. Do you feel like there's a lot of overlap between people who use drugs and people who sell them? Because it sounds like it could potentially just be like a way to work around penalizing people who use drugs by just exploiting an overlap. Does that sound correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. No, no, for sure. For sure. And the many people who sell drugs, are, they sell to get their own substance. So Right. Know. Yeah. I mean, I know it's certainly true in the U.S. That just seems to be kind of a truism everywhere then. And Mariabo, like, um, I, I know in the past you've mentioned that there's like also some gendered aspects um, to this as well in Latin America. I, I mean, there is, that's, that's true here as well um, in different kind of degrees, but yeah, do you talk about that just for a sec? Sure. Um, when speaking about like uh, incarceration and how we experience uh, those criminalized situations that, that Ernesto sorry, um, explain later, um, it's of course different to women and feminized bodies, how we receive that oppression, you know, and how we uh, manage that criminalization. When speaking about Latin American women, uh, there are a lot of situations that are not uh, doing well since the beginning. There are a lot of uh, families that are only by women, for example, and that uh, because of their vulnerability and difficult situation, um, their access to drugs could be easier. So they start selling to provide food on their homes. And as Ernesto said, uh, the next step is basically incarceration. And what we just did is to separate a, a mother from their family and we leave the family basically alone by itself. 
um, amplifying the vulnerability of not only this family, but thousands of family around uh, Latin America. That situation has increased the time and also um, the disproportionate the, uh, penalties that Ernesto mentioned too. It's something that we do experience. Um, of course, the stigma is higher because um, with the example that I just provide you, uh, society is going to say, why is, uh, why is a mother basically trafficking drugs? Um, why is she doing that? Um, and there, she's going to feel, of course, like stigmatized and she's not going to feel like she did something for her loved one, which is basically the reason why some people, um, you know, um, traffic because it's the only way that, can, that they can sustain themselves. And when they get out of prison, um, the system itself like help them to to do the same things again, you know, and to start uh, selling drugs again or to start feeling like there's the only income that I can have because society doesn't provide me with a job and doesn't give me the opportunity to be someone else. You know, as soon as you put a step on prison, that's who you are for the rest of your life, even though you're out. And that's something that we should, um, of course, like, I don't know, fight against or talk about it a little bit more because it's so normalized, you know. Um, and I know that, uh, well, Ernesto and I have talked about this a couple of times, but you, of course, you can read it even on social media, how people basically hate uh, people who are um, like in the incarceration process and how they promote that someone who is um, experiencing the situation doesn't deserve a shelter, doesn't deserve food, uh, and don't deserve uh, basically nothing because of what they did. And the situation, um, it's something that we have to discuss too, because of course that we have to point uh, like all the wrong things that are on our laws, on, on things like that. But uh, like normally speaking, societally speaking, people are continuing promoting criminalization, you know, and we are continuing open um, like hard spaces for these people. And we are, we have to like move on the both sides of it. We have to work up on the laws and things like how we can achieve for a better um, understanding of penalties, for example, and of other alternative options, like Ernesto said. Um, and we also have to take into consideration that we have to build up on society different perspectives around that. Uh, that there are a lot of people who have loved ones in prison that uh, suffer on every comment that we post on Facebook or social media. That's something really hurtful. And um, that would, those kinds of things, and I'm talking specifically most about social media because with the pandemic, I think that it has increased a lot. People use a lot more social media and they have a lot more opinions about basically anything. <laughs> so uh, in the last couple of years, I've searched around this. And um, yeah, that's something uh, that I feel about. And I know that I talked uh, too little about gender. I hope that we could talk about a little bit more too, yeah, but I, I just I, missed the line with what Ernesto said. <laughs> I, I, I think we'll, like, we'll, we'll really dive deep into that when we, when we do your episode. But one of the things that kind of popped in my mind is like, you know, in this like international kind of discussion of like drugs, right? Like uh, this, there's like a, not a binary, but like a tertiary kind of um, system, right? It's like, you've got your um, producing countries, you've got your consuming countries, and then you've got your like transit countries, I believe is what they're called. Um, and I, I, I'm wondering is like, 
Costa Rica more of a, a an end point, or is it like uh, you know, like when we're talking about drug trafficking, or we just talk about like low, I mean, low level sellers are always the people that get picked up um, <laughs> the most. But um, I, I'm just wondering what the the dynamic there is. Um, you're aware. I'm guessing that it's probably in, in this I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. Maybe Maria can, can take it from there. Um, well, we, we're being historically a transit country. Now, um, and, and Central America in general, if we talk anthropology and archaeology, it's also been a transit area from the north and south. And so. But definitely, all the cocaine is produced in three countries in the south. Now, and I don't know, 80, 90% of that goes to United States, Canada, and Europe. So the, the big market is on the north. You know? Even though we do use this kind of substance, we, use, we do use cocaine. Now, most of it goes past. You know? So that, that's, that's the thing. You know? the, the, the problem also, if we want to talk about drug trafficking, is how the routes of cocaine have changed in the last decades. You know? Because if you see Scarface, most of it went to the Caribbean. Uh, route now, then it was the Pacific coast, and mainly because of United States patrol in the Pacifics and in the Caribbean, most of that route changed through Central America. So now we do get more cocaine than ever. You know, it says like 80 to 90 percent of the cocaine that goes to United States goes through Central American territory. You know, so I say like 10 years ago. Uh, you didn't see as many criminal organizations or I don't know killings about drug traffic. Now it's normal. You know, now it's it's an everyday thing. I don't know the helicopter that crashed because it was just two packed with cocaine, or two Mexicans and one Honduran caught um, in drug trafficking. A police officer was an ex police officer was just guarding the I don't know three hundred kilos of cocaine. So it definitely is that. But we are we are a uh, um, cannabis producing country. Well, we also get cannabis from Colombia and from Jamaica. No? So um, the thing is, we do use drugs, but for example, cocaine, for example, it definitely goes up north. No, it's, it's more a transit country. But with cannabis, I think, in fact, cannabis, uh, people under 30 years old in Costa Rica, under 30 years, smoke more cannabis than tobacco. No? So it's definitely changing the perspective now and right now to get i don't know mdma lsd uh, everything it's much much easier also through social media now because in my times shit, you had to go through so many things to just get a good pill uh, now it's just pretty easy yeah and, and i um it's funny because i'm not I'm, i've never, never been much of a weed smoker in all honesty but i remember when i was in costa rica like all the Canadians were really complaining about the Costa Rican weed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like they're like, like at this festival and like, you know, like um, I, I, Vancouver's very much like a, like, but I'm, I'm sure they were not like complaining Coke about city. it. And so like, they you know they love, like they love the Coke. Just like with us, uh, Ernesto was saying about how easy it is to, to get uh to get up something it is like you can get to a whatsapp group, uh, group chat and you can find someone like or five people to give you uh like something that you want um but, th but that's also something that i want to talk about like uh like the dealer dynamic between uh, men and women it's also pretty different you know sometimes i don't feel safe by uh 
uh, even if it's, if it's easier. Um, if I have to be one-on-one -on -one with that person, I really get nervous. I always ask a friend to be with me and of, or I go with someone that I trust in. Uh, even though I met this guy for years, like you never know. <laughs> and that's something that uh, my friends have experienced. And, and that's, we have to always keep this alert mind, you know, in our heads, uh, when we are using drugs and when we are buying drugs, when we are, uh, distributing or trafficking, if someone needs, you know, uh, of course I'm, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I traffic. I'm just saying that if I have a friend and he or she wants, of course, the situation could also be tense, you know, because, um, uh, if, for example, if you gave some uh, MDMA to, to a guy that you're dating or something like that, um, maybe um, that situation could lead to him wanting something more from you, you know? So uh, maybe you don't want that. You just want to have a good time and you just want to be high, you know, and, and have a good one with that person. But um, the fact that you already gave him drugs um, allows him or society basically lets him to do whatever he wants with you and you are the one who blame. So those kind of exercises, we always have to keep it in mind when talking about like uh, using drugs or getting drugs. That's something that's always pop up in my mind. And I just wanted to say that. <laughs> it's like needing to avoid vulnerability kind of and like being in a vulnerable position. Yeah, exactly. Like the most common example is like when you go to a bar and someone puts something on your drink, mm -hmm. uh, you didn't went there to someone putting something on your drink. You went there for the drink, you know, and yeah. just because you went to the bar, everyone says like, you know, it's your fault because you went there. So you lead someone the open gate to do something with you that you don't want to. Right. And that's something that it's so like, like confusing in my mind, even like talking to you guys about it. It's so frustrated and confusing for me because it's something that we have to talk a lot uh, in the harm reduction discussion. Uh, I know that we all have heard of it, but uh, like in party spaces and nocturnal um, like festivals or something like that, it happens. And a lot of women never say anything because they feel like they are the ones who blame and they are the ones who are having the fault of what they experience. And that's something that we have to take into account. I think there's a lot to say about unaddressed sexual violence and gendered violence in this space, like in the um, like the festival space too. Kind of like you mentioned, Maria Alba. Um, do you feel like maybe it, do you feel like in in Costa Rica? Do you feel like it's likely that if maybe you were sexually assaulted by someone while you were you know high on MDMA, for example, is that likely to ever result in actual like consequences for your attacker? Or is there kind of a culture of kind of ignoring that? Or like you mentioned earlier, placing the blame back on the, on the victim? Well, you know, when there's sexual abuse or sexual harassment, the process uh, of just like t telling the police that, you know, this happened to me and to place a record and everything, it's awful. Like and any women wanted to go through that because it's a revictimization process when they ask you, tons of the same questions over and over again to see if you're lying or not. And yeah. that situation could happen like in 10 seconds or in 10 minutes. So sometimes your brain goes in shock. You don't know exactly what is going on. Um, you get really like days after you can talk about it, weeks after, years after. So it's always difficult. And when the drug use gets related, it gets worse because as I told you guys before, it's like, basically why were you there why were you hanging out with that guy why were you doing drugs like 
you are basically putting yourself there and it's something that gets us a lot of the times you know um uh that's something that i've really experienced too um that's why um i don't basically party or (laughs) or enjoy and do drugs with anyone that i don't know like Mm -hmm. i'm never gonna be in a place with someone that i don't know (laughs) doing anything like that um because um when i when i was feeling in the past that a guy was being nice to me he was just trying to take advantage not once not twice like three or four times and that's like my shield mechanism you know i just try to protect myself because i feel like if i don't do it um anyone is gonna do it you know uh so that's how i really feel about it like when when drugs are related to sexual abuse it gets really worse because um you know even if you for example if you don't do drugs but the person who assaulted you did uh you are gonna be blamed too like just if you did like the same way so that's um something that we have to discuss and work on with yeah and and that i oh no sorry Claire, you go no no it's okay um i was just gonna say thanks for sharing that that's happened to me as well so i really i empathize with you and i appreciate you being willing to talk about that because i know it's really not fun to discuss or think about um but i also wanted to mention too that like this kind of victim blaming i think it's important to remember that that really erodes community because if when that happens to you you feel inherently pushed away from your community that's supposed to be there to take care of you and support you and in like your most vulnerable time they just sought to blame you so yeah i think there's so many important reasons why this is something important to confront like layers and layers and layers of reasons like it's bad for individuals it's bad for safety it's bad for community and then something is bad for like the drug using community that's bad for activism too so it zooms all the way out too i think to like the really big picture so thank you for talking about that with us i'm excited to dive into that even more later on when we talk to you individually so thank you for that no, thank you, Claire, too, for for telling that. And yeah, consent and drug use, it's always a difficult oh, yeah. you know, But we're gonna talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like having worked music festivals, having been sexually assaulted in music festival too, um there's a different kind of dynamic to that, to the the gendered experience that I don't wanna like, you know, my the the waters there, but um I uh, it's always so so complicated to talk about it. and and it, it is kind of it at least in Canada and in the US it like it's this it's part of the founding myth of prohibition um you know it's this idea that the and there's a lot of racism attached to right is this you know Chinese migrants um you know allegedly corrupting um white women by bringing them into their opium dens um as uh you know the moral panic newspaper story that like, went around in like the, the 1900s and it, it there, there's so much victim blaming that gets like attached when when substances become involved um as well um i um it it was a little refreshing with the the me too moment here uh where we started seeing these big like producers and stuff um get taken down and people actually women actually believed (laughs) um and uh but there's still so much of that toxic uh culture to unpack yeah we're definitely not there 
just yesterday, there's a university here that got a big expose about how they were systematically refusing to address any like sexual assault allegations on campus. And it's the exact same logic that Mariabo was saying. <laughs> so no, we're far away from a solution, but yeah, step one is, is calling it by its name and talking about it. So at least yeah. there's that. <laughs> um, one of the things uh, I wanted to talk about was um, these, uh, like, um, was around crack, um, actually, because um, uh, Ernesto, you did one of the original studies, as far as I, if I remember correctly, on crack use um, in uh, in Costa Rica. Um, you know, like we, like you know, like I feel like in, in North America we have there's kind of this notion that like you know crack cocaine just because of its history, like is you know tied um to very particular you know it had to the cia funding its efforts by flooding the streets of inner city the, like america like black communities with 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 crack but I, I i'm guessing that the history of it you know in costa rica is probably a bit different i'm wondering if you could you know uh frame that out a bit or i could be totally wrong <laughs> Uh, no, well. I, 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 I can, I can, I can go with it. No, it's, it's, it, the thing with with crack, it's, it's fairly similar. No, in fact, the 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 representation, the way we look at people who use crack, comes from United States. You know, and it's part of the war on drugs. You know? and, and in fact, what we've seen with this advance of cannabis legalization is that people who use crack or use cocaine get more criminalized you know at the end the whole apparatus on the war on drugs have to focus on the most vulnerable population and so um the the thing with crack it's interesting because it's different in the region you know the 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 cocaine producing countries don't usually smoke crack well it's not usually smoke crack but they usually smoke base that it's before cocaine uh, or the the the, um, the remains of the cocaine production called basuco. No, we don't get coca leaves. We don't get base here. We get cocaine because we're part of the transit route. No, so we get crack. Uh, and the thing with crack, it's that people who use crack are the most stigmatized and vulnerable and criminalized. You know, and and there's really few information. No, there's so much stigma that nobody does research about that. You know, besides, I think Brazil kind of Mexico and Uruguay uh, have a lot of Brazil, there's a lot of research, you know, so uh, we have been trying to start speaking and talking about that. It's been really difficult, you know, so the TNI, the Transnational Institute, have helped us a lot because they have been really interested. Well, you know, TNI has always tried to, to focus in areas on drug policy that nobody's doing anything about it. You know? We got some support from a stimulant grant, I think it was from, from OSF, um and G gdp da or something like that i think it was german uh, the global drug policy index uh, that thing whatever <laughs> uh, so we got that funding and we did uh first a research here in costa rica with crack users we did some uh, uh, interviews with crack users in, in san jose city mainly people uh using like um uh, it was like uh, rehab centers for shelters mainly shelters in the in the center of san jose 
we interviewed like 20 people and we, we published a small document called buying fear. Now it's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's a word that crack users use a lot. You know, there's an, uh, an effect it's that they associate with crack. It's not the effect of crack, but it's kind of effect of paranoia. No, and I remember a, a kid, I was like 18, 10, 19 years old. He was telling me that he doesn't rob and he doesn't uh, assault people or anything because when he smokes crack, he just gets so paranoid that the police is going to come and stuff. So what people say is, man, you're wasting your money to get scared. No, you're buying fear. No, so um, they just melt that down drinking alcohol. So it's also a lot of, of poly use, no, there's a lot of drug use, and they don't get anything because there's no harm reduction in Costa Rica. No, well, they're starting, the government is trying, they put out a, a, a model, a harm reduction national model in like 2017, and they're trying to do something, but it's just far, far away now, and there's nothing, there's no addressing these people now. So we wanted to do go further with TNI. So we got another funding. Well, they got another funding, not me. I just worked with them. Um, and we did a, an international kind of research and we got gathered in several, it took us like three years. We went to several DPA conferences. I think it was one in Atlanta, the one before. I don't um, and we also did the, the Latin American Drug Policy Conference in Santo Domingo. And the last one in Mexico, we did some workshops with people from, I don't know, it was like 11 countries in Latin America. That's why I know there's so much research in Brazil, because Brazilians do work a lot. They do have a lot of harm reduction. In fact, I encourage you guys to have a, a, one of these podcasts with Brazilians, because they're, they're far uh, forward than the rest of Latin America. Now. And their harm reduction is really interesting because it's more broader harm reduction at the end. They understand this vulnerability, this criminalization, so they address the situation. So we got the chance at a certain point to get to look at the Brazos Abertos with open arms program in Sao Paulo that was famous because there was like 15 different government institutions giving out food, shelter, workspace, housing. It was a, a complete success till the right-wing government got the next uh, political sense and they just closed everything, no? Uh, but all that information was documented in this um, research, well, this paper we did with, with um, TNI called uh, cocaine, smokable cocaine markets in Latin America. No? So we tried to put out some information to make the discussion. The weird thing is not much happened. I thought after that, people were going to talk about it and I was going to get invited and Pien from TNI was going to get invited to talk. No, there's so much stigma on crack that nothing happened. I even gave it to several people here, influencers, you know, that they were talking about cannabis. And I said, man, I'm also working on this. Give it a help. No, man, they post their things on cannabis, but nothing to do with crack. Nobody wants to talk about that. So wonder, it's definitely a thing to put out in the table and start talking more about it. One of my one of my friends from my masters, I was Colombian. Um, you know, like him and I were, were were talking about it. It's like the one thing I really enjoyed about him is like when I was there was that like all of the Europeans were like, oh Canada, Canada is so nice, Canada is so great. And then I talked to like you know my the the two people in my program was from Colombia, the other one was from Chile. And they're like, fuck Canada, and I was like, hell yeah. Finally, someone <laughs> understands me. Um, it was like all the all the mining, and that T and I also did a great report on. Um, medical cannabis um, and Canada, mostly Canadian companies, but also quite a few American companies just going in and like stealing up the market. 
and which maybe we could chat a little a bit about that that um at the end um in terms of some of the futures um stuff because it's one of the ones i'm always afraid of um but um what he was saying to me is that like no one like he's like in Colombia, no one talks about cocaine like he's like you couldn't get like a like a a, a non like drug user oriented like um drug project because no one wants to talk about it because it's so it, it, it has such an ambivalent place and that it like you know both funds a lot of state activities um that would otherwise just be like not doable and or are bribes that like connect but it's just so interwoven within like the the infrastructure that it becomes hard to talk about it because there's a lot of you know like while there are you know that there's that kind of aspect there's also you know a lot of you know violence and displacement of like indigenous peoples and um you, you know like and, and so it becomes complicated like a thing that you don't want to talk about but do, do they talk about with cocaine like hydrochloride or is, is it just crack that's like off off limits mm, i think that like uh, yeah as a cocaine user myself, I cannot tell that to a lot of people that I know and a lot of close friends because it's going to ruin what they think about me and how they see myself. And that sucks because like the people who know me and the people who trusted me and that I trust, uh, I could open that, you know, um, without telling me, telling them like, you go ahead and like take a pass. I don't know how to say that in English, you know, but <laughs> take a hit or something. I don't know. Uh, I'm never going to tell that to someone that it's not a user, but everything is fine when the cannabis is on the table with, with the cocaine is on it, or, you know, even it's okay if it's LSD, if it's MDMA, it's, it's kind of cool, you know, it's like, oh, okay, okay, good. Uh, but when you talk about crack, when you talk about cocaine, it's like, oh, uh, no, uh, we don't, we don't want that in our houses. You're going to start acting weird. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that too. Um, it's it's really fun and interesting because I have been told like, are you high because you're speaking a lot? And I'm like, I haven't take anything <laughs> when I'm on when I'm on cocaine. I don't even talk like <laughs> like it's it's so different like um, how people perceived it and sometimes how we fight against it too. You know, even if ourselves we stigmatize ourselves. We're like, you know, I have to hide myself from this because. Um, I don't like who I am. Uh, I don't like what I do, etc. Which is, of course, understandable. But at the same time, it's really hard because uh, the, the society itself, it's going to tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. And you're treating yourself like garbage because of the same reason, you know. And that's a discussion that we, that, like an inner discussion that we have to go around ourselves um, when different drugs are uh, being used or are being uh, like, yeah, consumed in our bodies or something like that. Of course, we have to, to take that into account. Um, there's a level, and I believe that cocaine, the crack is a uh, lower level of how people perceive the use, um, of course. Yeah, um, but it's like, it, it's kind of easy to understand because crack is such a cheap drug uh that it's like available on the life of many vulnerable people that don't have a lot of money you know it's not crack it's not really a substance that it was meant for rich people you know it, it never was 
And that's why it was implemented on Black communities, on Latino communities. And that's why heroin was too. Uh, it's never like associated with that. Heroin here, it's really uh, expensive, I believe, because the only couple of times that I've been able to be close to it, uh, it has been really like, it was like 50 bucks for a needle. It was really, really expensive, you know? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> because I've never heard about that. Uh, but it's a teaching experience that I really love to learn too, because I also have misconceptions about other things that I don't use, that I don't do, you know? And the fact that I could be close to someone who does something different, even if the, if it's a homeless person, even if it's your friend, because I also have friends who do crack and they have uh, a super wealthy living, you know, and they don't care about it because, you know, they mom and daddy's money is gonna always going to be there. So uh, it's a different and very um, like, yeah, it's, a, it's a, such a different way to perceive it. But always the problem with drug use is when you don't have money. It's uh, like... If you if you are wealthy and if you have your shit together, nobody's gonna tell you anything. I know for a fact doctors, like licensed doctors that do crack, cocaine, etc. And it's not a problem because they are doctors, because they provide something so vital to society that it's not a problem. But when it's a homeless person that is giving you nothing and that the state and the society has to give them something, that's when people get mad and that's when people don't like it. And that's something that we have to take into, uh, into consideration. You know, the, the class topics that we sometimes discuss in anthropology and sociology, they are also part of the war on drugs. Um, and that's something that we sometimes get uh, just as, you know, as people who are homeless or something like that. But we don't really discuss like the, the usually use of, of drugs in, in different families, in different groups of people, uh, and in lonely people too, you know, um, um, but but yeah, I think that the biggest problem is that when 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 you are not providing to society what you are supposed to, if you don't work and you do drugs, there's a problem, because what are you doing then? You know, you're only wasting your time or your family time or something like that. That's how people perceive that situation. I'm not saying that I perceive it that way, but uh, that's a conclusion that I have uh, uh, through the years. That's something that I really think it's super linked. And that sometimes we don't we don't dive deeper in that, you know. I want to, and that's what I want to do right now. I want to put on our cultural anthropologist hats. Um, Claire, you can put on a smaller hat. And that's okay. oh, you can put on a cap. I put on that my works hat. as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Claire has an adorable cap for the listeners at home. Um, <laughs> like, uh, but uh, yeah, if we could, um, you know, like, like for me, like when I because I, 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 my side loves Canadian drug history because I find it so weird um it, it, it's just it's just really strange to me um like the further you kind of dig into it like the like the first chair of the CND was um actually a Canadian guy um uh but but also like um and uh in like the League of Nations like like because like like you know like I, we talked about this in a previous episode, but so I'm just going to lightly, you know, touch on it, right? It's like, like the, the, the British loved selling drugs to people, um, you know, it, like, you know, like the, um, the Canadians hated it. And it's like, like one of the reasons that they didn't like opium, you know, and uh, was because like, they felt shitty about the, the British forcing um, opium onto these, you know, 
poor backwards Chinese people in the opium wars. Well, that's how they thought of it. And that's not what I, what I, I, I think just to be clear, but like, like that, that's like, there's like this really like puritanical kind of um, sense to it, not Catholic, but like very like Protestant, Puritan upright citizenry. And, and, and like when I was in Costa Rica, I was like, drugs were decriminalized, but um, you know, at the music festival, they had to let everyone know that you can walk around topless um uh <laughs> which here is totally is totally legal and like and and you know and that and like but it, like it, but it was like taboo taboo like more taboo in some ways than it seemed like tourists taking coke and i um i i i'm just like i'm, I'm just wondering if there's you know like like what like if there are any kind of cultural kind of elements that play so obviously like class you know comes into comes into play i mean like crack gets a lot of stigma but it's 90 percent bioavailable when you smoke it so it's way more efficient um than, than putting up your nose uh you know um uh we don't think about it, it normally in terms like that but yeah i'm just wondering you know like are, are there like, like kind of like cultural elements that like shape you know while you know that shape the fact that it's decriminalized but also that you know you're tough on dealers or that um you know like you have to you know mark yourself as a as a, a quote-unquote like drug addict to get out of court you have to like doing that like you're trying to mark yourself as like the 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 welfare poor you know like <laughs> um in a sense right you're trying to make yourself look like you have like you you don't have these resources and that you you have this you know like trying to gain right? pity on this that wouldn't yeah. work here <laughs> be the victim uh, you have to assume a victim uh, uh, role. Uh, so I'm victimized, I'm an addict, uh, help me. No, definitely, definitely this, I think, sorry to just jump in like that. Uh, no, 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 I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> no, no, definitely, we're, we're a Catholic culture. You know, so it's it's really conservative you now. And, and no, nobody talks about drugs. Now, even though Canada has these issues and it's not completely decriminalized and all that stuff, you have been talking about it for a long time ago you know, with all this cannabis regulation and legalization stuff i talked with a lot of canadians because they want to invest and in also people from the united states it's, it's a thing about money we can talk about that because definitely there's a big lobby from cannabis industries from the north you know? and it's funny when i when they ask you no know, I, I, I once there was this guy asking if they, they want to put out a vapor center in Tamarindo, there's one of all the tourist beaches. And I said, what? They said, yeah, yeah, just like those I have in, I have here in Toronto. And I said, he's just Costa Rica, man. It's completely different. You, know, you cannot just put up a vapor center. You, know, you can just not allow people to use drugs in your private restaurant, for example. It's illegal. You can go to prison for that. You know, so nobody's talking about drugs. You no, know, we just been starting talking about weed, I don't know, three, four, five years ago when they presented the first medical cannabis and we just started to talking about medical cannabis now, in fact one of the big issues with this law and this project that is going into the parliament is nobody is want to talk about home growing no you cannot grow because you cannot control the quality of your weed. and i cannot control the quality of my weed when i buy it in the legal market so how come no but it's medical so the criminal organization so at the end it makes this all up now as i said it, it's you put the drug user, the drug trafficker, the, I don't know, the um, cartel, kingpin you know, in the same bag. They're all just the same. 
Now, so it's, it's crazy to hear government officials or parliamentarians saying that if we legalize medical cannabis, criminal organizations are going to take over and start selling weed to our young people. What? This, this doesn't make any sense. No, so then you realize that we're just far, so far behind the drug policy discussion that people just mix, mix that up. No, no. And I think it's definitely like topless stuff, for example, we're still really conservative with that. No, and tourists have to know about that uh, because they might get some problems with, I don't know, locals or, uh, or maybe also about the gender issue. No, you can get more harassed if you're a woman going topless, but about drugs, we don't even want to talk about that. No, we just, we know you use drugs, but just go and do it in your private. No, I don't need to see you using drugs. No, but it's definitely really um, stigmatized too. No, but we just don't, we just get, uh, put the, the look sideways and see if nothing happens. When you know there's towns, Tamarindo or Jaco, where the, where the festival you came, Alex, it's known for its drug use and uh, sexual commerce, for example, uh, and it's directed to tourists. And I and didn't know that. Really the second part when I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hakol, man. It's, 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 kidding. It's, you have to know. It works like that. <laughs> yeah, I remember when my mom went there and she was like, I hate this place. There's only drugs and prostitution. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, welcome to our own country, mom. This is friendly. <laughs> I like this yeah. At least in Austin, you, 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 you get some regulation on that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's also a lot of racism, you know. Uh, we discussed it at the beginning of the of the session, but it's also the, something that we have to remark. Um, when you were discussing a little bit about Canada, you know, I've always got suspicious about Canada because everyone loves Canada. I'm like, <laughs> when you know that someone, well, that everyone loves someone, you have to, sus to be suspicious, you know, and you have to not buy it like from the first thing because meh, I don't know. Um, the mining situation was, were the first things that I heard about Canada, you know, like in a critical perspective and everything. And, um, well, yeah, and, and the migration situation is also pretty rough because it's like they don't want any migrants there, you know. <laughs> uh, getting a visa in the U.S., it's easier to get it from Canada. It's a lot easier. Um, and that's something that I've heard and experienced, too, because my visa from Canada was denied. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was uh, in free trade. But when speaking about racism, for example, um, I cannot talk about like uh, the data in Costa Rica specifically because as Ernesto said, there are no base place, there are no dispensaries here. There are only dealers all over the place. Um, but um, when talking about the US at least, uh, I believe that less than, um, less than 1% of the uh, dispensaries and small, well, and business around cannabis are led by black or Latino people. Uh, which says a lot, you know, yeah. it, that, it gets a lot of information. Uh, the main reason is that um, when you have to, when you want to buy a license, you basically have to have your um, your incarceration or your, I don't know how to say that, but your documentation, law documentation, like, uh, like fine and without having in the past any situation uh, like associated with incarceration or something like that. As you all know, there are a lot of Black and Latino communities that experience incarceration in the U.S. Uh, even though they were 
um, they could be innocent or even though uh, the the life sentence or all of the sentences are super high or something like that. Um, or maybe they just steal, you know, one gallon of milk or something like that. There's no distinguish around that. Uh, the only thing that we see is that they were in prison. So if a black man who was in prison for, I don't know, 60 years for stealing something out of a supermarket will never be able to open a dispensary because he's like his documentation is already like, you know, marked. Uh, he will never be able to do so. Even though he, uh, even though the black and Latino communities in the United States were the ones who were historically having the most knowledge around cannabis, for example, um, they don't only know how to grow, but they artistically made a lot of incredible material around that. Um, they are the ones who know, but they are in the ones who produce. You know, they are in the ones who are seeing the money, and they will never be. <laughs> and that's something that we should keep an eye on. You know, because we are really getting used to that we are not questioning anything basically we're just like oh you know it's because he was in prison and we have to as i told you guys uh later on we have to dive deeper around those uh situations and we have to be a little more critic about that because um you know um sometimes we just get used to someone else thinking for us the state the police um our parents you know and we have to stand up for ourselves and that's something that we sometimes lose the mark from that. Yeah, absolutely. Really well. Uh, and and uh, just like, um, so there's like a, a, a joke in Canada. That is, it's, it's true. It's just sometimes fun to laugh at as well. Uh, Canada's not actually a real country. Canada's fake. It's like a, a thing you'll see on Twitter uh, quite a bit. Um, or Canada's three uh, mining companies in a trench coat. Uh, <laughs> But it's, I mean, it, it, it's true. And, and so the, the story for back for right at our introduction, like when I, I didn't, she didn't call me out. She, she, Zara did not say anything bad about me. I just happened to be the only Canadian in the room. And this was like at the time where, um, I mean, I, Mexico's still working on it, but the, the um, you know, like Zara and uh, the Institute, oh gosh, fuck, I'm, one second. I, I can't remember what institution Raya, like what the other letters in it are. Um, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. I'm sorry, Zara and Jorge. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I know, like, uh, um, you know, she didn't call me up personally. I just happened to be the only Canadian in the room. Uh, and um, like the these Canadian cannabis companies were um, uh, fighting to privatize more of the Mexican cannabis market. So the, the original plan was to keep most of it like state owned. Um, and then uh, I might be wrong about this, um, but I believe also one of the things that Zara was working on was um, trying to keep it within um, the, like the, the common lands. There's a different term for it in Mexico um, that I, I can't think of right now. Um, but like the indigenous held um, like um, communities, um, and uh, yeah, so these you know it fucking it, it, it's uh, it, it's enclosure, right? It's like an enclosure of like of the common land. It's like the privatization of all this, and like Canada's just gone and done that in a whole in a whole bunch of places. It's it, the weed industry is kind of like a, a new mining company. <laughs> 
you know, uh, in, in, a, in a sense. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, you shouldn't be suspicious of Canada. Like, we, there's, it's almost impossible for anyone to, um, to come and uh, sue the Canadian government, or sue one of these mining companies in Canada. Um, uh, I mean, like, it's it the continued the- exploitation of resources for, like, evil and racist gain. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just- for capital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. in fact, there's a Canadian mining company suing the Costa Rican government. Uh, Probably they could do that. Wow. The yeah, no, they're doing <laughs> yeah. it. I think they, I think they lost and they, they're appealing again. Uh, it's been for the last five, six years. The thing is, Costa Rica has a law that prohibits open air mining. Uh, uh, it was one of the few countries. So it, they, the, I think I don't remember the name of the mining company, Harken or something like that. They lost millions and millions of dollars because they they just started a mining project here. So they're suing the Costa Rican government. I think it's been going for the last five or six years. Something similar is going to happen with cannabis, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that, I mean, I mean that, that's not that's not the worst of it, though. Sorry, with the, the mining companies, is they hire our militia. And, like, um, Don Paley talks about this as they can start more capitalism um, a bit. Um, like, just go and like, murder union leaders um, and community stuff. I mean, like, the, the cannabis stuff is still, it, it is still evil. I mean... Uh, I think in Colombia they they've gone and there was like the original idea was that they would have these like um, Colombian only like um, uh, like um, licenses to grow medical cannabis um, and so what the Canadian companies did was they went and they just bought up these companies uh, these Colombian companies um, in order to get access to um, to a more of the market share. Um, and and yeah, I know it. It fucking it's evil. We we should talk about how evil it is because Canadians don't the, care enough. It's beyond. No, the the thing is, is here with, with Costa Rica, most of Central America, we're a banana country. You know, we've been a colony for the United Food Company. I don't know since eighteen fifties or something like that. You know? And now we're a pineapple country. You now golden pineapple. We're the most how was the countries with the most production per capita of pineapple in the world and the country with the most use of fertilizers in the world also uh, this green ecological country um the, the same thing is going to happen with cannabis now you have you can grow the whole year cannabis here now you don't have to wait for summer we don't have a summer we just have rainy season and dry season so uh, you can just grow cannabis the whole year and we don't even know what's national market. In fact, it's the, how, how it's been uh, proposed in the par- parliament and by politicians is how much money we're going to make of, out of this. Uh, and when you ask, okay, how many people are, are going to use it here in Costa Rica? How many patients? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Patients were not even asked about the, the, the bill. No, uh, but companies were, definitely. No, and a lot of companies. So now you have the whole... And uh, industry, national industry, pulling like cannabis, medical cannabis is going to save us from economical crisis. Um, it's not about medical cannabis. It's not about making money. And as a colony in a, such a small country, it's for export, exportation, most of it. I mean, uh, I got to be careful here. I don't think anyone from one of these companies will listen to this podcast. And we use the word allegedly a lot. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, 
Um, so the last CMD Commission under Kirk Jerks that I was at, I was talking with um Myrtle Clark and Julian Jules Stobbs, rest in peace, by the way, um, who are the the Daga, they're like the, the Daga um couple, right? And so they they are the ones that push really hard to get cannabis you know, fight for cannabis legalization in South Africa. Uh Julian and Jules passed away. Um, unfortunately, um, in um, unrelated robbery like a while back, but yeah, um, we had been talking about doing a project on this because they were explaining to me that, um, like, uh, allegedly Canadian companies are going into places like Ghana, um, and um, and into South Africa and, and pitching them on this idea that they could sell weed to the Canadian market. Um, if they made medical cannabis and let Canopy come in, underpay, allegedly come in and underpay um, their workers. Um, but there, there's no, you can't sell weed to Canada. <laughs> it's like, uh, we have too much weed. We don't, there's not, like, we make enough nationally that the prices are now lower than the illegal market is. It's like $4 for a gram. It's fucking nothing. Wow. Uh, um, but it's like they, they go in and then, you know, spread this myth because this is how capitalism works. Um, and they want to look to their shareholders like they're really doing something. And we had plans to work on a project on this. Um, and then the pandemic hit and then all these Canadian companies shut down their factories um, in these like just cut all these people off their jobs allegedly um and um and that and that was that um but it, it's all part of this idea that like part of the myth that they sell you know is that you can sell weed to canada they're, they're, no one wants to buy weed from other places why why, why would you it's like four dollars a gram <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard, you know, because as I told you guys, um, there's always going to be, um, there's always going to be someone who is going to benefit from the legalization and someone who doesn't, of course, like, even though we're all drug users, I don't know, like, um, for example, here in Costa Rica with the law that Ernesto was saying, uh, they said that only 30% of the, like, of the medical options could be made by small businesses. And, uh, but you know that businesses are not going to be that small. <laughs> They're going to have enough money to keep on that going. And there are a lot of really small micro businesses that will never be part of that. Um, the money is still going to be around the hands of people who had money since the beginning, you know, because it's, it's a necessity to, to achieve your, your projects. You know, you have to have money. And when speaking about these licenses, which are not going to be, you know, $4 a gram, they're not going to cost that. They're going to cost a lot more. Um, the things that are, uh, there are benefits that only few people are enjoying, you know. For example, the, the thing that you said of $5 a gram, there's something that only Canadian citizens are experiencing right now. No one else is having that uh, good weed at that, at that price. No one else. And they don't care about it too. Like they don't care about the South African people having for four dollars uh, a gram. They don't care. And you know th that's what I told you. Like we have to to try to promote this exercise of thinking twice about about it. My brother once said to me, like when someone is doing it or with something or someone is 
it's being so nice you have to to double check what's going on there you know because uh it's not for free anything is for free on this life you know um for example um I, I remember my friend said social media is free and it said like because you're the product sister that's why it's free and uh, we have to to understand that you know uh nothing in this life is for free and uh I, i'm not telling you that if i do something nice for you then i'm gonna ask for a favor in exchange or something like that i'm not that kind of person but it's something that happens you know and not only in our daily basis when having a partner or when working with someone it's it's gonna um go higher to an institution or to the perspectives or of how um the state could work or or how i don't know a company could work and you know that's something that 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 we have to take into account there's also the situation with the seats market Latin America has experienced a lot of damage with the seats uh, prohibition and everything. And you know that you, the US or Canada, um, they also like promote or are used to that discussion too, because I've, I've um, read about like um, the United States farmers who are experiencing that situation too. Um, but the the seed market and the illegal seed market, it's a situation that is going to experience Latin America when speaking about wheat too, because um, there, um, the fact that um, the lower class uh, cannabis have seeds and the higher class doesn't have it, it's because the seed itself is modified, you know, because every seed from every tree or every fruit or something like that is going to provide you more seeds because that's how nature works, you know. And when you um, control and when you try to manage the production of cannabis, you are capable of stopping the seeds from growing again. So the person has to come and buy more seeds. That's the market. That's the situation. Like the plant itself, it's never going to produce. It's not going to do its natural way of living, you know. And that's something that we have to take into account. There are hundreds of strings. Uh, like we talk about OJ Kush and we talk about Dragon Ball Z and we talk about a lot of things that are all names that are not even real, <laughs> but they exist, you know. Um, and they're um, like chemically and scientifically modified. Uh, that's how it looks that way. That's why it smells that way, you know. And th those are things that we are used to that. And we just say like, yeah, it's such a nice meat. But um, like behind that situation, there are a lot of things going on. You know that all of them we discussed it through this episode but it was nice to talk about it <laughs> I, I i think like here it's not that they're gen genetically modified but they, i mean in a in a gmo sense like they, they are genetically modified but it, it's the, the crossbreeding of strains so like you just you keep breeding plants to select for particular kind of things but that's over like a longer kind of pure process i also want to say like the reason it's so the so cheap here is not because the companies want it that cheap uh, because they're all in the hole because um, the licenses here were also really expensive and now you're getting like newer people coming into the market for the first little bit you could only go through the, these four licensed producers and that was it that's changing now um, but the, the reason that's so cheap is that they upskill production so quickly um that they like you know everyone was worried like we're not gonna have enough cannabis for the market now they actually have too much so they have to sell it because they have to get rid of stock um 
basically. And, and that's what makes doing this, that that's what makes it, you know, going to like the Costa Rican government and telling them or Colombia and saying, if you let us make weed here, you'll be able to sell it to Canada. It's just not true. <laughs> it's like, we make, it's like, um, you know, like, you know, we make enough of our own. It's like, you know, if I could, if I could go grow coca here and then like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to sell it to Colombia. It's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, in fact, what, yeah, what you said, I, I just wanted to say something like that because at the end we talk about weed, we're talking about cannabis legalization. Yeah. I'm going to die and I'm never going to see cocaine legalization. Yeah. And the thing is, you guys up there don't produce coca. No, until the United States and Canada start producing coca and start producing their co own cocaine and see the market, the value market. No, it's a capitalistic stuff. We're never going to see legalized cocaine uh, uh, because it's about money. It's not about human rights. It's not about health care. No, it's all about money. No, so definitely that, that's, that's the thing. And that's something I've been really critic and been criticized, you know, because it's it's hard to be an advocate for drug policy reform and start criticizing, you know, medical cannabis bills and saying, man, then in fact, the bill here in Costa Rica is not allowing people with criminal records on drugs issues to participate in the market. It's already in the bill. Now, as Maria Alba said, it's, we already have it here. You know, so what we see in is it's uh, going forward with this economical rights for medical cannabis, where we're going backward on um, human rights for people who use drugs in general. Thank you for listening to the Drug Futurisms podcast. More information and resources for this episode are available in the show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, you could support us at patreon.com slash drugfuturisms, give us a good rating on iTunes, or share this podcast with a friend. Drug Futurisms is produced and hosted by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo, our cover artist is Brooke Payne, and our original music was produced by Jake Goodison. Until next time, remember, another drug world is possible.